0: Mm-hmm. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink and this is Chris Gania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 3rd, 2014. It's already the last quarter of the year. Tonight, Sadie Bond is in our prayers. I won't say why, but she she needs yours also there's a new mailing address and and i've had a few inquiries there's a new mailing address for christiania to, to reach me by by postal service email anyway um posted on the contact page at the main website and at the mine comp site this afternoon I, I have to catch up on the other websites to see if i even have an address posted posted at any of those. Of course Clifton's website should have a way to reach Clifton and, and um, I don't think there's my address posted maybe it is the Saxon Messenger. I have to check that later. Tonight we um, embark on a presentation of 1 Corinthians and we're moving right along and hope to um, have a complete New Testament commentary posted at Christogonnia soon. When I say soon, of course, that's relative. I've been presenting the New Testament on and off now for... Um, wow, a long time here. I, I think um, it's over three years, three and a half years. We're going to redo the Revelation presentation soon, probably as soon as um, we're done with Paul. And by then, Yahweh willing, we will also have a complete commentary on the minor prophets, which is nearing that now. There's only a few minor prophets left. A lot of people can't wait for me to get to Zechariah. And somehow, I think, and and I got an email pertaining to this the other day, Somehow I think it's because they want me to do a commentary on Zechariah chapter fourteen. And that's because the the um, the frauds and the shills, the great impersonator are using um Isaiah chapter fourteen, I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter fourteen to somehow imagine that bastards and beasts are going to be admitted into the kingdom of heaven. Because it talks about those who were left of the nations that came against Jerusalem, that they would be um, punished by God if they did not appear at the Feast of Tabernacles. Why do people imagine that one prophecy somehow nullifies another prophecy? Why do people imagine that one passage in Scripture contradicts other passages in Scripture? Yahweh God said in Jeremiah on two different occasions that he would make a full end of all the nations where the children of Israel were scattered. But he would not make a full end of the children of Israel. So when you get to Zechariah and you see that those left of the nations had better attend the Feast of Tabernacles, that doesn't contradict the words of Yahweh and Jeremiah. That augments the words of Yahweh and Jeremiah. You better believe in Zechariah 14 that those left of the nations are those Israelites that Yahweh promised would be left. It wasn't going, it's not going to be bastards and squat monsters that are left of the nations. All the bastards and squat monsters, according to the word of God, are headed to the lake of fire. I will make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you, but I will not make a full end of you, speaking to the children of Israel. So the great impersonator,
1: goes from passage to passage in Scripture
0: and argues against Scripture and refutes Scripture itself because he knows better than God in trying to squeeze beasts and bastards into the kingdom of heaven. The words of Christ say that unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. He won't see it from the inside. He won't see it from the outside. He won't see it from afar. He shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Zechariah chapter 14 does not promote universalism. Rather, it refutes universalism because in relation to the Feast of Tabernacles, only the children of Israel were given the laws of God. Nobody else. Only the children of Israel were given the feasts and can... Tabernacle with God. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. There won't be any beasts or bastards at the Feast of Tabernacles in the kingdom of our Christ. The great impersonator, of course, is a fraud. I'll post Tom something in reference to this little rant in the Christogenia Forum later on this week. And with that, we will commence with our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the first of Paul's epistles to the Corinthians, almost. It's almost the first. We'll explain that shortly. The ancient city of Corinth sat in the Peloponnesus the Peloponnesus is that landmass that is almost an island in the Mediterranean, not quite, below uh, mainland Greece. The city of Corinth sat in the Peloponnesus, a few miles southwest of the nearly four mile wide Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow neck of land that connects the Peloponnese to mainland Greece. The Greek word isthmus means neck, as it describes a narrow passage. In the mid 19th century AD, I'm talking about maybe 150 or 60 years ago, the Greeks built modern Corinth, much closer to the coast of the Adriatic Sea. The had once stood. The site of modern Corinth is northwest, and much, it's on the Adriatic Sea, much closer to the sea than the site of ancient Corinth was. The archaeology of the original in the area in very ancient times. However, the archaeology also indicates that the site of the city was only sparsely inhabited, if it was inhabited at all, when the Dorian Like all Greek cities, myths were developed surrounding its founding, part of which are fascinating and surreal, and part of which seem to represent historical facts. Most such myths put the founding of cities in the hands of the gods, the idols of the pagan Greek people, and very often they were also developed for purposes which were political as well as cultural. In any event, the city of Corinth became a notable city among the Greeks by the end of the 8th century B.C.,
1: which is around the time of um,
0: the beginnings of the Assyrian invasions of Israel, the destruction of Samaria. Samaria. In the 7th century B.C., Corinth, like other large Greek cities, began to search out other inhabitable lands and to create colonies abroad. The um, explosion of Greek culture in the classical era, the dawn of the classical era, the beginning of the lyric poets, the earliest, perhaps, of the
1: epic poets,
0: and the explosion of Greek colonies abroad all coincide roughly with the time of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. In the 7th century BC, Corinth, like like other large Greek cities, began to search out other inhabitable lands and to create colonies abroad. Among the more famous of the earliest Corinthian colonies are Arta, which was in what is now northern Greece. Epidamnus, which was halfway up the coast of modern Albania, north of Greece, on the Adriatic Sea, on the western coast. Right, Corsira and Ambrosia were, were islands in the Adriatic Sea to the west of northern Greece. Syracuse was the largest and most famous of Corinthian colonies. It was on the eastern coast of what we call Sicily. Apollonia, in what was later known as Illyria, far north of northern Greece. And Podidahia, which was on a peninsula on on the far northern coast of the Agency, east of Greece. The settlement and elements and and this should be considered by anybody who wants to consider the origins of the European peoples. The settlement and elements of the early history of these colonies are known from Greek writers themselves. Now, other tribes of the Greeks, as well as the Phoenicians, who also settled diverse parts of Greece, were even more energetic and successful than the Corinthians were, in the founding of colonies in these directions. And the Dorian Greek Spartans had various colonies as well. Note that where we have accounts of early Greek colonies, meaning those which were made before the Persian War, before the beginning of the um, 5th century B.C., whether those colonies were on the northern shores of the Aegean or the Adriatic, or in the northern regions of the Black Sea or the Danube River Valley, where there were many Greek colonies, the histories <clears throat> I'm sorry, the histories never relate accounts of any interference or resistance to the founding of those colonies by other tribes, such as those which, were, which are often imagined to be in the north already. If there were already Aryan or Germanic tribes in the north, they should already be coming south, because the Greek writers described the land north of the Danube River as being uninhabitable, because of the cold. Strabo says that. Several other Greek writers say the same thing. The descriptions of Germanic or Celtic tribes encroaching upon the Greeks or Romans to the south are always set in a context which places them in the 5th century BC and later with the exception of Homer's mention of the Cimmerians. And Homer's mention of the Cimmerians can accurately be dated to the end of the 7th century B.C. That's when Homer was living and writing, according to the Greek records themselves. The historical records refute the idea that the Aryan tribes of the Mediterranean had their origins in the north. They also refute the idea that the Germanic tribes were well settled in the north before the beginning of the classical period. They certainly were not. The general narrative found in the historical records corroborates Christian identity assertions concerning the origins of the modern tribes of Europe. Of course, the modern historians and anthropologists never could find their elusive so-called original Aryan homeland that they like to imagine being in the north of Europe. It was never there. However, in many ancient stories, the origins of various Greek tribes are said to be in Asia, or in Egypt, or in the islands of the sea. We then see their historical accounts which describe the various foundings of their many colonies in the north. And in their histories we see the spread of Greek and Roman peoples and civilizations northward and westward from their Mediterranean coasts. And sometimes, such as in the time of Alexander the Great, they went back and conquered the east. As for the Germanic peoples, who were later found in the north, they can be traced as having migrated westward from Asia in those same Greek and Roman histories, and they appear in the north and west at relatively late and diverse times. Doris Siculus states that the people of the Galatahi, later called Galatians by Englishmen, and Germans by the Romans, first became known to the Greeks in the 4th century B.C., Library of History, Book 17. The Greeks did not know of the Galatahi, who the Romans called Germans, before the 4th century B.C. When Livy wrote of the appearance of the Gauls in northern Italy in the late 5th century B.C., in his account, the Roman historian calls them a strange race, new settlers, because the Romans did not know the Gauls or the Galatahi, or the Germans, or even the Cimmerians who had come from Asia before the very end of the 5th century B.C. And the Galatahi first invaded Rome about 393, 392 B.C., the very beginning of the 4th. However, historians, both modern and ancient, assert that the Dorian Greeks came from the north, and they point to stories concerning the Dorian Tetropolis, which are four cities which lied west of Phocis and north of Delphi on the Greek mainland as evidence of this. While it is true that both Herodotus and Thucydides imagine this to be the origin of the Dorians who later invaded and conquered the Peloponnese, they offer no accounts more elaborate than their singular statements, and they do not agree with the earlier poet Homer. Theodorus Siculus gives an account in which he says that the Dorians had, long before their conquest of the Peloponnese, and, and we will date that shortly, inhabited these, these places just north of the Peloponnese in Greek, but that they were expelled by the Cadmians. the Cadmians being a reference to the Phoenicians of Thebes. Thebes in, in mainland Greece was a Phoenician city and only later returned to dwell in the cities of the aforementioned Tetropolis. With this, Strabo seems to agree, as does Herodotus. But Herodotus calls the Dorians an excessively migratory people, speaking of them in the earliest periods. That's in the Histories, Book 1, paragraph 56. All of these statements concern things which are prehistoric, and are not supported by the earlier epic poets, who are the earliest um, reporters of the appearance or origins of people in Greece. It cannot be taken for granted that even if the Dorians had a settlement in mainland Greece at an early time, that it was their homeland for very long before their invasion of the Peloponnese. That cannot be taken for granted, and it cannot be taken for granted that because the earliest Greek historians put the Dorians originally in mainland Greece and migrating south to the Peloponnesus, that still doesn't mean it could be taken for granted that they had originated in points north of northern Greece, and they certainly did not, neither Are they original to northern Greece? And that cannot be established with any certainty. What can be established from historical records, as we shall see, is that the Dorians did not come from Greece at all. The modern historians also claim that all Aryans came from the north. That's simply something they take for granted with their humanist worldview. They claim they all came from the north into the ancient world at one time or another, and they are consistently in error because the records of the Greeks and Romans themselves tell us that they came from the east or they came from Egypt or they came from Anatolia or Syria or Judea or Israel. And we shall see
1: that. Homer
0: is given... And, and Homer is often dismissed, oh, he was a poet. He, he just um, wrote things that didn't matter. Homer and the other epic poets, their works run a lot deeper than that because historical truths were meant to be transmitted in their poetry. And it was by design that the poetry was entertaining in order to transmit historical truths, and cultural memes if I have to use that word, which basically perpetuate the existence of a culture. In Homer's day, that was done through epic poetry. Homer is given much credit by Strabo for his knowledge and accuracy in describing the peoples of the Oikumene and the regions where they lived. Now, Homer was a poet, and Strabo was a serious geographer and historian. The poet, Homer, is constantly cited by the geographer. It is difficult to perceive that Homer, going out of his way to sing, of the tribes of the Greeks, would omit the Dorians from Greece entirely. This is especially true since Homer often mentioned Delphi and Olympus, which is far northeast east of Del- Delphi, both of them being in northern Greece, and mentioning those people, those places, I'm sorry, and writing at a time when the Dorians were a very significant people in Greece. It is apparent that Homer made no mention of Dorians in Greece because there were no Dorians in Greece at the time of the Trojan War. If there were Dorians in Greece, it would be difficult to imagine why and how Homer simply omitted them, which he did. The following, so that we understand how much Strabo appreciated Homer, the following is a quote from Strabo's geography from Book 1, Chapter 1, Paragraphs 10 and 11. So Strabo starts right out the gate with his very voluminous geography talking about Homer.
1: This contains
0: Strabo's first attestation and defense of Homer's knowledge of geography so that we see in in, um, Homer's world how much the Greeks understood the world around them. And they understood it very well. This is only a glimpse. Homer then, and I quote, Homer then knows and clearly describes the remote ends of the inhabited earth and what surrounds it and he is just as familiar with the regions of the Mediterranean Sea. For if you begin at the Pillars of Hercules, or Heracles, you will find, and he's talking about the Straits of Gibraltar, you will find that the Mediterranean Sea is bounded by Libya, Egypt, and Phoenicia, and further on by the part of the continent lying over against Cyprus, then by the territory of the Salini. By Lycia and by Caria, and that's an entire circuit, counterclockwise circuit from Spain around the Mediterranean. And next by the seaboard between Mycale and the Troad, together with the islands adjacent thereto. And all these lands are mentioned by Homer, as well as those farther on about the Propontis and the Euxine Sea, which is the Greek. Name for the Black Sea, as far as Colchis, which is um, near modern Georgia and Armenia, and the limits of Jason's expedition. More than that, he knows the Cimmerian Bosporus, which is the Crimea. Because he knows the Cimmerians, for surely, if he knows the name of the Cimmerians, he is not ignorant of the people themselves. The Cimmerians who, in Homer's own time, or shortly before his time, overran the whole country from the Bosporus to Ionia. Now, they are Strabo's words. So Strabo is dating Homer to the period when the Cimmerians overran parts of Anatolia. Now, Homer can be dated another way, and that's by the elegaic poet Archilochus. And from Archilochus's writing, we know that he was writing, because they, the Greeks counted the Olympiads and things like that, right? We know that he was writing about 585, B.C., as, as well as from historical comments, which he made. Now, if Archilochus was writing in 585 B.C., then um, Archilochus also stated that Homer lived a generation before him. So there are two witnesses as to the dating of Homer in ancient Greek writings, Strabo and Archilochus. Homer was contemporary with the Chimerian invasions. And the Chimerians, as it is documented in Mesopotamian inscriptions, the Chimerians took part in the destruction
1: of Nineveh,
0: and the other cities of the Assyrians. Now, a generation before Archilochus, a generation before 585 B.C., the Cimmerians appear to the Greeks, and Homer becomes known to them. And they cross into Europe and settle around the Black Sea, up above Thrace. So Homer, he talks about the land of the Cimmerians in the north, but that doesn't mean they were always there. The Greeks really didn't know that they had come from Mesopotamia. They seem to have imagined, because Homer said that their homeland was in the north, that they had come from the north, but they certainly didn't. So that dates Homer. And it also shows, according to Strabo, that Homer knew, he really knew um, thoroughly the world around him and the peoples that inhabited We'll continue with Strabo, and he says, At least he intimates that the very climate of their country is gloomy, and the Chimerians, as he says, are shrouded in mist and in a cloud, and never does the shining sun (laughs) look upon them, but deadly night is spread over them. And Homer does say that, and, and that is usually taken as the Greek perception of what, it was like to live that far north. Homer also knows of the river Ister, which is the Greek word for the Danube. Since he mentions Mysians, a Thracian tribe that lives on the Ister, more than that he knows the seaboard next to the Ister, on the Thracian side as far as the Peneus River, for he speaks of Paeonians, of Athos and Axios, and of their neighboring islands. And next comes the seaboard of Greece as far as Thesprotia, which is near the border of modern Albania, which he mentions in its entirety, and yet more. He knows the promontories of Italy also, for he speaks of Tymessa and of Sicily, and he knows about the headland capes of Iberia and of the wealth of Iberia, as I have stated above. If between these countries there are some countries which he leaves out, one might pardon him, for the professed geographer himself omits many details. And we might pardon the poet, even if he has inserted things of a mythical nature in his historical and didactic narrative. That deserves no censure, for Eratosthenes is wrong in his contention, And and Strabo was both a fan and a critic of Eratosthenes. For Eratosthenes is wrong in his contention that the aim of every poet is to entertain, not to instruct. Indeed, the wisest of the writers on poetry say, on the contrary, that poetry is a kind of elementary philosophy. But later on, I shall refute Eratosthenes at greater length when I come to speak of Homer again. Now, let me say that this was Strabo's um, view of poetry and Strabo's writing in the late first century B.C., but he's correct in saying that poetry was also for the transmission of instruction, philosophy, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, most of it's written in poetry. The Exodus is an epic poem. Strabo goes on to say, for the moment, what I have already said is sufficient, I hope, to show that Homer was the first geographer. And as everyone knows, the successors of Homer in geography were also notable, men and familiar with philosophy. Eratosthenes declares that the first two successors of Homer were Anaximander, a pupil and fellow citizen of Thales. Thales was from Miletus. He was a Phoenician by blood. And Hecatahius of Miletus, who was also a Phoenician, and very often quoted by Diodorus Siculus, that Anaximander was the first to publish a geographical map, and that Hecatahius left behind him a work on geography, a work believed to be by his by reason of its similarity to his other writings. So so that's what Strabo thought of Homer. He considered Homer the Iliad, the Odyssey, the geographical references within those great poems. He considered them to be works of value to geographers, and geography as well. So, while according to Strabo, Homer left out some details, Homer was also writing of a time. He's writing of the Trojan Wars, long before his own. So, in my estimation, he attempted to portray the world as he thought it may have been at the time of the Trojan Wars, as best as he could. There are, nevertheless, a few anachronisms in his work, especially concerning the Cimmerians. However, because the Greeks certainly knew when it was that the Dorians appeared to invade the Peloponnesus, and that they did not invade it until after the Trojan War. Homer never mentioned the Dorians in the Peloponnesus. Homer never mentioned, and he was the earliest of all the surviving Greek writers, Homer never mentioned the Dorians as being in Greece at all, even though at Homer's own time, the Dorians were the second most significant and most powerful tribe in Greece behind the Ionians, and that's arguable. They may have been the most powerful. That's debatable. That, that's debatable. Homer described all of the people of Greece, and Homer makes no mention of the Dorian Tetrapolis, or the cities which are in it, or of Dorians in Greece, or of Dorians anywhere in the north. The Dorians, who by all accounts had invaded Greece by sea, which is hardly necessary if they had come from the north, and overran. The Danans in the Peloponnesus and later founded their mainland cities are only mentioned by Homer as being on Crete in Book 19 of the Odyssey. If the Dorians really originated in northern Greece, why would Homer only mention them as being on Crete? Homer is writing at a time when the Dorians were very powerful people in Greece, and accounts of them, I'm sorry, and accounts them. Homer accounts them as being virtually insignificant to one of the most important events of early Greek history in his epics, not even mentioning them or their cities in his famous Iliad, and only giving them one brief mention in the Odyssey. And that one brief mention in the Odyssey states that they are on Crete. The truth is simply that the Dorian cities did not yet exist because Dorians were not yet in Greece. According to the accounts of all the Greek poets, they all agree with this. The sons of Heracles, they were called the Heraclidahi or the Heraclidae. The sons of Heracles were ejected from the Peloponnesus by the Danans. The Danans were the... uh, They were also called the Achahians by Homer. They were the most powerful tribe in Greece at one time, and they were the Greeks who had destroyed, sacked, and pillaged the Trojans. Sometime later, the Heracleidae, or the sons of Heracles, returned by sea with a mighty people called the Dorians. And the Dorians, roughly two generations after the Trojan War, by all accounts, conquered the Peloponnesus from the Danans and settled there in large numbers, founding many cities, Corinth being one of those cities. The following paragraph or two is based on a paper entitled Classical Records of the Dorian and Danan Israelite Greeks, and it's found at Christigenia. It is my contention that the Dorians actually came from Dor in Palestine, a city on the coast of the land of Manasseh and a city where many ancient so-called Greek artifacts have been found by archaeologists. These artifacts show a Greek presence at Dor as early as the 7th century B.C., and that is certainly much earlier than the Hellenistic period and the spread of Greek culture. The 7th century B.C. is the time of the last recorded Assyrian activities in Israel. And that's, um, we could see that, where Ezra chapter 4, verse 2, talks about Esar-Haddon. Esar-Haddon was the king of Assyria and Ezra puts him in Palestine. He was the king of Assyria from 681 to 676 BC. That was the time of the last major deportations of the Israelites. If the Dorians migrated from Palestine rather than from the north, Crete is a logical place to begin settling and route to the west. Further evidence that the Dorians were Israelites is found in Josephus in his record of a letter written by a Lacedaemonian king. Sparta was in Lacedaemon, or Lacedaemonia, and the Spartans were also Dorian Greeks. This letter was written to the high priest in Jerusalem about 160 B.C., it is found in Antiquities, Book 12, Chapter 4. And I quote Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, Onias was the high priest in Judea when, when the letter was written, to Onias, sendeth greeting. We have met with a certain writing whereby we have discovered that both the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians, meaning the Dorian Greeks, of the south portion of the Peloponnesus, that the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians are of one
1: stock
0: and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send to us about any of your concern as you please. We will also do the same thing and esteem your concerns as our own and will look upon our concerns as in common with yours. Demodeles, who brings you this letter, will bring your answer back to us. This letter is Foursquare. And the seal is an eagle with a dragon in his claws. And of course, the letter was um, inscribed in clay and baked. That appears to be so from the description. And it's described so that no forger could add pieces to it. Now, this account of the letter and its contents is factual, is verified, by the reply to it recorded by Josephus in Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 5, a reply made by Jonathan the High Priest, one of the Maccabees. But this reply and a description of the original letter are also described in the first Book of the Maccabees in Chapters
1: 12 and 14. I have an aside concerning Crete. It can be demonstrated that the
0: the people of Crete that lived there, even in the times of the Trojan War, even the people of Crete remembered by the Greeks in their earliest writings and in their oldest account, it can be demonstrated rather easily that they couldn't have been in Crete very long. And and that's because in the middle of the second century B.C., which is just about the time of the Hebrew Exodus, there was uh, an explosion in the Mediterranean in this very place, and if you look up Santorini, S-A-N-T-O-R-I-N-I on, on, on the Internet, you will find references to it, and um, Santorini was not far north from, north from Crete. And this is the largest, according to um, geologists and, and other people from various so called sciences. This is the largest volcanic eruption. It's sometimes called the Minoan eruption in recorded history. And it happened about 1600 to 1500 BC, right around the time of the Hebrew Exodus from Egypt. Nobody was on Crete after this explosion.
1: The people that um, came through Crete,
0: therefore, and were known by the Greeks, who the Greeks identified rather consistently with the Phoenicians. Minos was often identified as a Phoenician, even though Josephus called him a Greek, I believe, in one place. Well, what we see from it, when we gather and collect all the Greek comments about Minos and, and the, the early Cretans, what we see basically is, um, in, in, from my perspective and in my opinion, we see Phoenician culture turning into Greek, Culture on Crete, and the Phoenician tribes coming into Crete, and Greek tribes coming out, and and, and um, of course there's a reason for that. There are prophetic reasons for that, but those so-called Phoenicians are not Canaanites for the most part. They are certainly the children of Israel. In this epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. It is manifest that Paul himself also believed the Dorian Greeks to have been of the stock of the ancient Israelites. This is certainly explicit in the tenth chapter of this epistle, but it is evident in the language which which Paul uses in other places as well. And some of that language is in the very first chapter of this.
1: Sitting near the base
0: of the Isthmus, connecting the Peloponnesus to the mainland, was convenient to the large ports which the city possessed on each side of Greece. Cancreati on the east and Lycahium on the west were the names of the ports. The city sat at a crossroads and as a notable center of trade, and it rivaled Athens and the other great cities of Greece for its wealth. Like the other Greek cities, Corinth had many temples, to the famous pagan idols. However, it was most noted for its temple to Aphrodite, and for the prostitution business, which that temple conducted. While female prostitutes were more famous, and a greater attraction, at least usually from what I've seen in the ancient writings, The temple prostituted boys as well as girls and women, catering to every perversion. In the classical period, Corinth became a Greek proverb for luxury and a synonym for fornication. Its name was used as a synonym. The name of the city was used as a synonym for prostitution and for whoremongering. By Aristotle and other writers. The term Corinthian woman became a euphemism for a whore. The term to play the Corinthian was to act like a whore. The Roman poet Horace is often quoted where he said, Not everyone is able to go to Corinth, meaning that not every man is able to. The
1: This debauchery is
0: luxury. But the proverb appeared in the Greek classics as well, and actually long before Horus. Aside from the fornication, which is found in prostitution, fornication of a somewhat different sort is also a theme in this very epistle, where in chapter 5 we see that Paul describes a problem facing this Christian assembly in Corinth, where a man had evidently bedded his father's wife, and the assembly had not handled the matter appropriately. We see fornication discussed here also in different contexts in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 7, and in chapter 10, where fornication is equated to race mixing. A lot of people say that Paul abused the word fornication, or that the word pornaya or pornes is mistranslated as fornication. That's not true. Fornication, in the in, in the, the, the concept of pornaya or fornication, and also in the Hebrew and the Hebrew equivalent terms, zoon, I believe, is one of them. The concept of what we call fornication, where these words translated as fornication appear in the Hebrew Old Testament as well as the Greek writings. The concept transcended prostitution to include any illicit sexual act, and both Greeks and Hebrews, of course, considered race mixing an illicit sexual act. Therefore, Paul describes the race-mixing event of Numbers chapter 25 as fornication. Jude describes the pursuit of strange flesh as fornication. But prostitution is also, especially in the Hebrew law, an illicit sexual act. So it too, whether it's prostitution of a man, a boy, a, a girl, a woman, it's still an illicit sexual act and goes into the category of fornication. And a lot of people don't get that concept. But fornication, or the words that we translate as fornication from Greek and Hebrew, simply describe any illicit sexual act. Race mixing, bestiality, prostitution, Homosexuality could all fall into the category of
1: fornication:
0: What we know from what we know as the first epistle to the Corinthians is not the first letter which Paul had written to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had reminded his readers in verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators. So we see that he had written to them on at least one occasion before this epistle. However, we shall continue to refer to this epistle as 1 Corinthians because it is the first one or the earliest one which we have and it is unlikely that the one which is earlier than this will ever be discovered. There are 14 ancient great uncial manuscripts, Bellum manuscripts all capital letters, they're called great uncials, right? There are 14 of these manuscripts which attest to significant portions of this epistle and which date to the 4th through the 6th centuries A.D. Three of those date to the 4th century. Additionally, there are two ancient papyri which contain parts of this epistle which date to the 6th century A.D., but there are two others known as papyri numbers 15 and 46, which date to the 3rd century or earlier. P46 is one of the famous Chester Beatty papyri, and that is believed to date to around 200 AD. So there are many ancient witnesses from the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries attesting to the text, or to portions of the text of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote this first epistle to the Corinthians from Ephesus. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 8 and 19 during the three-year period that he had stayed in Ephesus, as it is described in Acts chapter 19. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in verse 8, Paul wrote, Now I will remain in Ephesus until the Pentecost, showing that he's in Ephesus. Then in verse 19 he said in his salutation, The assemblies of Asia greet you. Both of these verses showed that he was certainly in Ephesus, Ephesus being one of the chief cities of the Roman district known as Asia, which was in east, I'm sorry, western Anatolia, what we know today as western Turkey. It was on the southwest coast of western Turkey, and the city Ephesus was somewhat inland from there, the old city. Anyway, Both of these verses show that Paul was certainly in Ephesus when this epistle was written. In verse 11 of the first chapter of this epistle, it is manifest that Paul was receiving letters from the Corinthians as well as sending them. With this, we shall commence with the text to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, a called ambassador and some manuscripts want that word called, of Christ Joshua by the will of Yahweh and Sosthenes, the brother. As for this Sosthenes, while we had overlooked mention of this man here in our presentation of Acts chapter 18, a man of the same name appears in Acts 18 verse 17. In the account of Paul before the judgment seat of Gallio, where he had appeared upon the accusations of the Judeans in Corinth, Sosthenes was described as the leader of the Judean assembly hall in Corinth at that time. And when Paul was accused by the Judeans, Gallio did not care to hear the charges. So the Greeks took Sosthenes, and they beat him before the court. Ostensibly, Sosthenes was beaten because he was bringing charges before the court, which Gallio dismissed with ridicule. If this is the same Sosthenes, and and there's every reason to believe it is, it's not a very common name, then perhaps Paul was able to bring a man to Christ before departing from Corinth, because according to Acts chapter 18, verse 18, Paul, after a, the, after the um, event at the judgment seat of Gallio, Paul had carried there yet a good while, meaning he had stayed in Corinth after that event for quite some time. If that is the case, then Sosthenes must have become a companion of Paul's and been with him in Ephesus, where Paul had written this epistle. Sosthenes is not mentioned again. We know by uh, evidence throughout Paul's epistles that Paul usually had somebody else do the actual writing of the epistles for him, and, and that evidence is actually explicit, in a few epistles, such as the end of Romans and the end of Galatians, it's possible that Sosthenes wrote this epistle for Paul while Paul dictated it. And, and that's, what, that's the impression that I get from this first verse. To the assembly of Yahweh that is in Corinth, having been sanctified in Christ Joshua, called saints with all those calling themselves by the name of our Prince Yahshua Christ, in each place, theirs and ours. Favor to you and peace from Yahweh, our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ. There's a, um, a lot of times in my translation I would write Yahweh, our Father, even Prince Yahshua Christ. There's a, um, Hebrew language construct it has to be that is certainly explicitly apparent in many of the Greek sentences of the New Testament and that construct is called parallelism and parallelism is where the same entity is described twice consecutively two different ways and I believe that every time Paul says something like favor to you from Yahweh our father and Prince Yahshua Christ that Paul understands Christ being the fullness of the divinity bodily as he writes in Colossians Paul understands that Christ is the fleshly manifestation of God among men, and he's using this terminology as a parallelism, of course, that there are some harebrained Trinitarians that can formulate arguments against that opinion, but that's my opinion. The words
1: for called,
0: in the phrase called saints, in verse 2, the King James has called to be saints, and, and that's a lie. That word is an adjective. It's an adjective that modifies the noun. Saints. Being an adjective, we can't just squeeze a verb in the middle. What we, a red ball. Red is an adjective. It describes ball. You can't imagine to be able to write red to be a ball. That's ridiculous. Called saints. They were saints before they were Christians because they were children of Israel. They were children of the Most High God by fact of their birth. That's why they're saints. That word called is an adjective. It may have been rendered as chosen or elect. As to the phrase here, calling themselves by the name. This clause, the Greek clause, may have been read calling upon his name, and arguments can be made that either reading is correct. However, we would rather interpret the word according to its most literal sense, since appearing in the medium or middle voice properly, the subject of the verb both produces and receives the action. We describe this use of the verb at length, where the same word, epicalio, appears in similar clauses to say the same thing, calling upon the name of the Lord, or calling themselves by the name of the Lord. We discussed that when we presented on. We discussed that three times in our presentation of the act. In chapters 2, 9, and 22, we felt it was necessary to do so. Our reading of the, of the phrase reveals the fulfillment of prophecies concerning this very act, that followers of Christ were calling themselves Christians, such as that prophecy which is found in Isaiah chapter 43, where it says, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, and I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not Back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. And as Acts eleven twenty six informs us in part, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, when Paul uses the phrase. That's what he's referring to, those calling themselves by the name of Christ, Christians. If the phrase can be interpreted either way, and ostensibly it can be. When we look in the lexicons at the word epicalio in the middle voice or medium voice as it appears here wherever we see this phrase calling themselves by the name in the Christianian New Testament or calling upon the name in the King James. When we look at the lexicon and see the way the word was used in that verbal form, the medium voice, we'll see that it can be It can mean to invoke a name, which means calling upon the name of the Lord. Or it can mean to take a name upon yourself, which would be interpreted as calling themselves by the name. So the King James has a grammatical reason for translating that passage the way they did. But the Christogenian New Testament has a
1: grammatical reason and a reason related to the fulfillment of prophecy.
0: The phrase, and this is towards the end of verse two, and this is another hard one. The phrase, and Panti pope oi, is commonly translated in every place. In fact, it's translated in every place in just about every translation except the Christogenian New Testament. Here it is in each place. The King James Version and others actually move that phrase from its original position in the Greek so that it precedes the reference to Christ. And in doing so, they corrupt Paul's original intent we have often asserted that the Greek word pas, of which the form "panti" that appears here is the dative singular, the Greek word pas is used in this manner to mean each, while literally it means all or the whole. Liddell and Scott explain that the word has an idiomatic usage equivalent to the word "hekastos," which means each each or every here in verse 2 Paul does not mean to describe all people anywhere who call on the name of Jesus to be the objects of his words and thoughts in this epistle that's ridiculous however several of the popular translations corrupt this verse to reflect that idea rather Paul qualifies the scope of the phrase and ponti with the words which follow in the Greek and which are translated literally and simply as theirs and ours. Theirs and ours. In each place, theirs and ours. Many of the popular translations add words to that final phrase. They try to add that word Lord in there. Their Lord and ours. The word Lord does not exist in that passage in any manuscript. Many of the popular translations add that word to this phrase in order to support their corruption. Paul here only seeks to announce his blessing to the Christians in his place where he and Sosthenes are And to the Christians in the place which he is addressing, which is the assembly of Corinth. Now, oddly, and I checked into this verse, the Douay Reims, 1899, American edition of the New Testament, which is translated from the Latin Vulgate. So those translators got the Greek, which was translated to Latin, and they took the Latin and they translated that into English, but that reads very similarly, similarly to the Christogenian New Testament, where it has, an, at the end of verse 2, it has the end of the verse to read, in every place of theirs and ours. So whoever translated into Latin, they did well. All these um, mainstream translations that translated the Greek into English, they tried to pervert Paul's words into their universalist agenda. The Christian New Testament reading here is accurate and contextual. All those calling themselves by the name of our prince, Yahshua Christ, in each place, theirs and ours. Paul writing to the assembly in Corinth. It has nothing to do with anybody else. I thank my God, some manuscripts want that word my, at all times concerning you in reference to the favor of Yahweh that is being given to you among the number of Christ Yahshua. That may be literally read to you in Christ Yahshua, but that word in has an idiomatic meaning which is, Employed frequently to mean among the number of a party or a group or a person, seeing that in all you have been enriched in Him, in all thought and all knowledge, just as the proof of the anointed has been confirmed in you. And the King James has verse 6 to read even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Well, well that's true. If it's referring to John chapter ten, my sheep hear my voice, then that's true. But I would rather translate this the proof of the anointed has been confirmed in you. That phrase in Greek tomartorion to Christu Tomartorion is Testimony, proof, or evidence, the testimony of Christ, the proof of Christ, the evidence of Christ. You could translate it that way. That doesn't mean it's right. Here it is, the proof of the anointed. And we shall see soon in this very chapter of 1 Corinthians sufficient evidence that Paul used the phrase, ho Christos, or the anointed. It can be translated to mean the Christ as a reference to Joshua, but it could be translated as the anointed, and there's proof of that later in this chapter, as a reference to the body of Christians collectively. Here, It is interpreted as referring to the body of Christians and not to Christ. The body of Christians who are of Israel, who are the anointed people of God. If Christ needs men to confirm his testimony,
1: then he is not God.
0: Yet all of the mainstream versions render this verse in that manner. The translation of this passage in the Christian Indian New Testament reflects an understanding of Christian doctrine, which is impossible to grasp without first having an understanding of the Christian Israel identity message of the Scriptures. If you don't get Christian identity, you cannot properly translate this verse. But this is a clear message of Scripture, nonetheless. Here, we shall examine several passages of Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31 to elucidate this message in part. We will will examine these chapters in part.
1: We will add to that a passage from Isaiah 53. To elucidate this message.
0: Sorry, I lost my place. We must, um, we must know that Jeremiah, when he writes these chapters, is writing from a post-captivity perspective. Jerusalem is destroyed, the Babylonians, they're going off into Babylonian captivity, and the children of Israel and most of Judah have already long been taken into captivity. From Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh, God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith Yahweh and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith Yahweh, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace, asking now, and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins? as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned to paleness.
1: Alas,
0: for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke, meaning the yoke from Jacob's neck, the yoke of their captivities. I will break his yoke from off my neck, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve Yahweh their God, and David their king, a type for Christ, whom I will raise up unto them, a promise of the Messiah. Therefore fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed. O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full land of all the nations where I have scattered thee. Yet Will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Skipping to from verse 11 to verse 22. And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of Yahweh goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of Yahweh shall not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the later days, in the later days, ye shall consider it. In these later days, identity Christians are indeed considering the ancient casting off of Israel and their reconciliation to Yahweh through Christ. From Jeremiah chapter 31, from verse 1, and we often quote the end of this chapter, and we will to some extent here. At the same time, meaning after Israel was cast off and before Israel is being gathered. At the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. So, therefore, grace, which is usually rendered as favor in the New Testament, as it is here in this passage of Corinthians, which we are discussing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God for the favor that you are receiving. Paraphrasing.
1: This favor, this grace, is a
0: matter of biblical prophecy. And it is prophecy to come to those same cast-off Israelites. This is the favor of Yahweh, which Paul speaks of here and elsewhere, quite often in his epistles. The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel when I went to cause him to rest depicted in Revelation chapter 12 as the woman who flees from the face of the serpent and is nourished for three and a half times ostensibly with the gospel
1: Yahweh has appeared of old
0: unto me saying yeah I have loved thee with an everlasting love, speaking to the children of Israel. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And to skip ahead to verse 7. For thus saith Yahweh, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Yahweh, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the coasts of the earth. And with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and her that travails with child together, a great company shall return here. And the language here demonstrates that Israel would be a people spread throughout the coasts of the earth. From ancient Mesopotamia, after the time of Jeremiah, we only find that in the Cimmerian and Scythian people. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. Here the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Yahweh gathers Israel to himself in Christ. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. And to skip to verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh. For they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Only Israel had the law therefore sin requiring forgiveness was peculiar to Israel, and therefore the forgiving of sin is only for the same Israelites. Thus saith Yahweh, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Israel is not a church. Israel is not a church made out of many disparate nations. But rather, Israel is a nation forever in the sense of being a kindred people. Although they were prophesied to become many nations, those many nations are still all the same Israel people. Thus saith Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth search out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith Yahweh. Israel is not a church of disparate nations. This is a parallelism. The children of Israel are forever the same seed of Jacob to whom the promises of Yahweh God were originally made. Still referring to the proof of the anointed from Isaiah chapter 49. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar, Yahweh has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother he has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he has hid me, he made me a polished shaft, in his quiver has he hid me, and he said to me, thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with Yahweh, and my work with my God. And now, saith Yahweh, that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Isaiah is writing, as the children of Israel are being carried away by the Assyrians into captivity. Though Israel be not gathered, while they're being scattered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel." I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation under the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of Yahweh that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel. And he shall choose the meaning Israel. Israel is the chosen, the called saints. Thus saith Yahweh, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. The proof of the anointed is found in the fact that the word of Yahweh God had prophesied that the nations of dispersed Israel in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, would accept and comply with the gospel of Christ. And they did. That is what Paul is telling the Corinthians in this very case, in this very verse, as Yahshua himself said, My sheep hear my voice. For that same reason, Paul wrote in chapter 15 of his epistle to the Romans that indeed I will not venture to speak of anything which Christ has not fashioned through me regarding the compliance of the nations in word and deed. The gospel message seeks the compliance of the nations of Israel to Yahweh their God. In chapter 4 of that same epistle, Paul had explained that the nations to which he brought that gospel were the same nations descended from the seed of Abraham. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read from the first verse a question, which is certainly in reference to the gospel, because it is followed with a clear messianic prophecy. And it says... Who has believed our report, and to who is the arm of Yahweh revealed? Paul quoted this very same verse in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 10 in reference to the gospel. However, many readers miss the fact that Isaiah chapter 54 is a statement in answer to this question and we shall read from it in part. So where it asks, who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? That's answered in Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren, thou that did not bear. Break forth into singing, and cry aloud, thou that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate, and the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh, the children of Israel are supposed to be greatly outnumbered. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy husband. I'm sorry, the shame of thy youth, meaning when Israel is put away. I missed a line. Thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Yahweh Christ died on a cross. Israel is in reproach as a widow until Christ returns. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken, Israel put away by God, and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused. saith thy God, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. Mercy, a matter of prophecy for the children of Israel exclusively. saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, and all thy children shall be taught of Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Christians accepting the gospel of Christ if they are Israelites fulfill this prophecy. The proof of the anointed is in the fulfillment of Jeremiah 30 of Jeremiah 31 of Isaiah 49 of Isaiah 53 Not the testimony of Christ. It's the proof of the anointed. Christians, scattered Israelites, accepting and complying with Christ, proved the word of God, that Israel would hear him, that his sheep would hear his voice. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. The children of Israel are established in righteousness when they believe the report mentioned in Isaiah 53. When they accept the gospel of the Christ, and that is the proof of the anointed, because it is prophesied that they would indeed do so. Verse (laughs) 7, Consequently, you are not to be wanting in even one favor, anxiously expecting the revelation of our prince, Yahshua Christ, who will also secure you until fulfillment void of offense in the day of our prince, Yahshua Christ. There are several witnesses in the
1: Old Testament prophets that the mercy of Christ was to forgive all of the sins of the children of Israel. For that
0: reason, Paul later tells the Corinthians in chapter 15 of this epistle For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Which also summarizes what Paul had expressed in relation to that same topic in chapter 5 of his epistle to the Romans. Here are three Old Testament witnesses that all of the sins of the children of Israel are to be forgiven, and there are no exceptions. From Micah chapter 7, from verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. From Jeremiah chapter 33, from verse 7. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. Right there. All the nations of the earth, after Yahweh makes a full end of all the nations where Israel was scattered, all the nations of the earth are the ones who are being pardoned of all their iniquities. And all the nations of the earth are the ones that hear all the good that Yahweh does to them. Therefore, all the nations of the earth are the children of Israel that are here at the manifestation of Christ. And all others he makes a full end of. Why don't Christians? Why don't identity Christians get that? This is a distraction from the topic. But why don't identity Christians get that? Who's left at the end? The children of Israel. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them, because He pardoned all their iniquities, the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. From the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, our third witness, from verse 4, this is a famous Messianic prophecy. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, no exceptions. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all.
1: There are no exceptions
0: in the prophets concerning the salvation of the children of Israel or the cleansing of the sins of the children of Israel. A lot of people say, oh, what about him? He's a real bastard. He's a satanic man. He did this horrible thing or that horrible thing. And yes, many of the children of Israel have done horrible things. There's no doubt. But it's all to the glory of Yahweh. All their sins shall be cast into the depths of the sea. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. I will pardon all their iniquities. Are we like sheep have gone astray, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Identity Christians have to grasp
1: the finite meaning of those statements
0: and the infinite mercy of our God upon his children. And the absolute lack of mercy of our God upon those who are not his children. Thank you for listening. I didn't get half the verses in tonight that I had originally planned. I will be here tomorrow night with Martin Luther on the Jews and their lies part 15. Perhaps next week we will conclude this first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel,
1: and good night.